Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. The Equal Rights Amendment has always been controversial, so it's only fitting that controversy has followed the ERA into 2021 during Women's History Month, when what could have been the 28th Amendment to the Constitution fell three states short of being ratified by the original and extended deadlines in 1979 and 1982, there seemed little chance for passage. But it's not quite case closed. The House has passed a joint resolution that would remove a deadline for states to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment to count states that came on board after the deadline. Opponents have called that move unconstitutional. Now the fight is set to move to a closely divided Senate. The House has also approved reauthorization of the Violence Against Women's Act, a less controversial bill that still promises to meet some resistance over gun rights provisions. In the wake of the Me Too movement and killings in Atlanta involving issues of gender and race, is the ERA up to the moment? We turn to Julie Sook, who is a professor at CUNY and author of We the Women, The Unstoppable Mothers of the Equal Rights Amendment, which chronicles and assesses the 21st century revival of the Equal Rights Amendment. When it comes to equal rights, Sook argues that the United States is behind in its ideas about what it means to have a modern constitution. What's worse, when the ERA was first introduced, laws on the books discriminated against women. Welcome to Equal Time, Julie. Why do you believe the United States still needs an ERA? Well, I think we need to contextualize it in the world of constitutionalism more broadly. The Mm -hmm. equality between women and men in the rest of the world is considered just a fundamental staple of what it means to have a modern constitution. Uh, Just like we couldn't imagine a constitution without equal protection of the laws, which we only got after the Civil War. Uh, We can't imagine having a constitution without the right to free speech, for example, the First Amendment. And I think that uh, in the rest of the world, the fundamental guarantee of equal rights between women and men is seen as something that legitimizes a constitution in the modern world. Uh, Back in the early 1970s, there were still laws on the books uh, that discriminated against women uh, by distinguishing between men and women. Uh, And um, and some states, uh, for example, the Virginia Military Institute in Virginia, which is a state-run institution, excluded women Uh, based on stereotypes about the proper roles of men and women. Uh, Now, that was uh, litigated against under the 14th Amendment. uh, And so we achieved a lot of progress on gender equality using litigation under the 14th Amendment. But the Equal Rights Amendment was not only about striking down those laws that discriminated against women. The Equal Rights Amendment was also, very importantly, about empowering Congress in the state legislatures to make robust policies uh, that actually implemented gender equity on the ground. And um, and those policies are very needed today because of the uh, economic devastation caused by uh, the COVID-19 crisis on women's employment and women's equal participation in the economy. Julie, I wanted to follow up on what you just referenced uh, the pandemic and the fact that we are at a a, a fraught moment right now. Women have been disproportionately impacted during the pandemic, especially working mothers. Uh, One out of three have left the workplace since the pandemic. So how would the ERA change 
this current circumstance? What we have to remember about the ERA was that when, especially the women in Congress uh, advocated for it in the early 1970s, they saw it not only as a tool for courts to strike down laws, but as something that would empower lawmakers to make policy. So it would really clarify the scope of Congress's authority to take aggressive action, uh, to speed up the process by which women are front and center in coming up with economic recovery plans. So right now, uh, Congress does have power under the Commerce Clause and under the 14th Amendment uh, to adopt many policies, but in the courts, the scope of Congress's power to do real gender equality policy has been limited uh, by Supreme Court decisions. Uh, And so if we have section two of the Equal Rights Amendment that clearly gives Congress the power to implement equality of rights under the law unabridged on account of sex, I think that that would make it crystal clear that we could have national and robust policymaking to address the many complex dynamics that are causing the female recession. Could you go into a little detail on some of the laws and policies that would be the follow-up, that would be the things that would be needed if we had uh, the protection of the ERA? A lot of the disruptions that women typically take for caregiving, and of course there are men who take those disruptions too, but it is largely just as a sociological fact, it's mostly women, it's mostly mothers, Uh, it has long-term effects on their earnings, and uh, it is largely uh, the explanation for why there is a gap where women make roughly 80 cents. Uh, to the man's dollar, and that number is lower, uh, that proportion is lower when you uh, take women of color uh, into account. So all of these things, I think if we had a paid leave policy, of course, it could be made available to both men and women, uh, mothers and fathers, uh, that would be do a lot to boost women's long-term uh, attachment to the labor market and ability to stay employed. Uh, and that's the kind of policy I think that I uh, that we could think of as a promotion of gender equality. That uh, Congress would have power, uh, unambiguous power, to enact uh, if an equal rights amendment what were adopted. Another area where I think there's some ambiguity right now about the status of our existing constitutional guarantee of equality has to do with affirmative action for women. So there are states, for example, the state of California adopted legislation in 2018 that requires every corporate board to have at least one woman. Uh, And this is very similar to uh, much more ambitious policies that have been enacted in many European countries that require half the corporate board to be women. And right now that is being litigated because opponents of affirmative action are claiming that if the law says you have to have at least one woman in an underrepresented situation, uh, that that violates equal protection because they claim that equal protection requires that everyone be treated the same. Given the moment that we're in, an ERA would make it really clear that the government can take action, even if it sometimes treats men and women differently, to overcome the disadvantages. Right now, it's not so clear under the constitutional law that we have. And, um, and so making that clarification now would be really important um, for moving ahead uh, in terms of government taking responsibility for gender equality. 
Um, I want to turn attention, too, to something else that we know from recent examples, something that's all too real, and that's the rising violence of against women. We can look at the tragedy that unfolded uh, in Atlanta. How can the ERA uh, meet this time, as far as that's concerned? How could, could it translate into policy when it comes to uh, such a challenge? Well, traditionally under our constitutional law, um, under the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, violence against women is a state and local matter, not a national or federal matter. And so the Violence Against Women Act, which was reauthorized uh, just last week by the House anyway, um, the Violence Against Women Act, when it was enacted in 1994, included some very robust national provisions, including the possibility of suing a perpetrator of violence against women or gender-motivated violence in a federal court. And the Supreme Court struck down that remedy. They Mm -hmm. said that Congress did not have power (laughs) under the existing constitution to uh, give women the ability to sue their perpetrators in a federal court. And so that's just one example. Uh, That is, there are many things that Congress might be able to do uh, in addition to allowing uh, a victim to sue their perpetrator. Uh, The Congress might think of other more robust ways of preventing violence against women. But these are all things that it's not very clear under the existing constitution that there's national federal power to do because we've long understood things like domestic violence or rape uh, to be state and local matters. I think Mm -hmm. the Equal Rights Amendment, because it says Congress shall have the power to enforce equality of rights under the law, not abridged on account of sex, would make it very clear that there's national legislative power to to, uh, address the problems of violence against women and gender-motivated violence. And I think the shootings in Atlanta really point to the fact that a lot of violence against women is about both race and gender and class. There are so many dynamics that go into that. And what that points to is the need to have a diverse range of legislative and legal tools to address it. And the ERA would make it clear that those tools exist. I would like to ask your thoughts on that a little bit more as a a lawyer, law professor, and an Asian American woman to reflect on just what's happened? Yeah, uh, I think that there is a long history of misogyny. And I'm interested in the problem of misogyny is not just about, uh, it's not just about hatred or violence. Misogyny is also just the expectation that women perform certain roles that everybody benefits from, but are not properly valued by society. Uh, are devalued uh, often. And I think there is a long history of Asian American women, particularly because of American wars in Korea and Vietnam. There's a long history of Asian American women uh, being expected to be taking care uh, sexually and otherwise uh, of men uh, and taking care of society in, in ways that are not fully valued. So I think that. Um, this notion 
Uh, and there's a lot of information coming out now that this notion that Asian American women were kind of um, sexual uh, providers, if you will, and this caused a temptation uh, for the accused shooter and a temptation that has to be eliminated. I think that is part of the dynamic of misogyny that casts Asian women in a particular way uh, as providers of sexual services. And, um, and so the misogyny, and what I think is unfortunate is that it took a very hateful and violent act for us to see that misogyny. But I think that misogyny exists even in the absence of hatred and violence. We know that passage of the ERA won't be easy. And uh, it, now there's opposition and they've even questioned the legality of reviving the ratification process for it because the deadlines that were set previously have expired. Uh, so as a lawyer, it, is that opposition uh, going to have a chance of being successful? Uh, how do you judge that? So it's actually a wide open question. Uh, we don't have clear precedent on this because this has never happened before where an amendment uh, failed because it was not ratified uh, within the deadline. And then it came back and then you actually got late ratifications. What is the legal status of those late ratifications? There are also five states that rescinded uh, the ERA. The only thing that's close to a precedent is what happened with the 14th Amendment after the Civil War. Because with the 14th Amendment, there were two states that ratified it and rescinded it. And it's the, the Constitution that just says uh, that it's valid when ratified. It doesn't really say what should happen if uh, Congress puts in a deadline uh, and it's ratified late. It doesn't say what should happen uh, if uh, a state ratifies it and rescinds it. And so the real question is who decides, right? If there's something that's not clear in the text <laughs> of the Constitution, who decides? So some people think that judges should decide. Uh, but in the case of the 14th Amendment, Congress decided. Congress huh. just decided that the rescissions didn't count and they proclaimed the 14th Amendment ratified. So I think because that's the closest thing to a precedent that we have, in this case, uh, Congress can and should decide what to do. And that's precisely what the House voted on last week. The House voted on a resolution that said that the ERA would be ratified uh, whenever 38 states or whenever three-fourths of the states ratified it, uh, which has already happened because there were three states that ratified it late. Uh, and so if the Senate follows, uh, that's the equivalent of Congress declaring it ratified and declaring it acceptable that three states came in late. I have to say, Julie, you are giving me quite a legal education. I didn't realize there were so many technicalities involved in the language of passing a constitutional amendment. but. I'm taking a lot of notes here. Um, what do you think the chances uh, now that it's going to the Senate? Well, thus far, no Democrat in Congress has voted against it last year or this year. And my understanding, based on the members of the Senate who signed on as co-sponsors last year, never made it to the floor uh, in the Senate last year, even though the House passed it. It just died in the Senate. So the interesting situation is that I believe we have actually 53 votes in the Senate, which is a majority, to pass the deadline removal. But because of the filibuster, uh, we generally 
accept that nothing happens in the Senate unless there are 60 votes in support. And uh, I don't think that there are 60 votes, at least right now in the Senate, to support the deadline removal. So if there's filibuster reform, then perhaps it'll pass in the Senate. Uh, But I also think that from the beginning, the ERA was always bipartisan. Uh, A constitutional amendment cannot be made by one political party uh, in any system, and certainly in ours. So it was extremely important in the 1970s that uh, there were women, all the women in Congress, almost all the women in Congress of both political parties uh, really supported the amendment and they supported the deadline extension uh, when, when the deadline was extended once in 1978. And there was uh, intense bipartisan support by the men in Congress as well, all the way, all through the 1970s. Uh, and today, uh, it, there were bipartisan sponsors in the House and there are bipartisan sponsors in the Senate. Lisa Murkowski, who's a Republican, is one of the most vocal supporters of the Equal Rights Amendment in the Senate. And she is one of the sponsors of the Senate resolution. So I think that uh, either there will be filibuster reform or there may be a chance to convince uh, people of both parties uh, that uh, American women need this amendment. Uh, It's been brewing for 100 years and it can help policies that will help mothers and working mothers. And I think both political parties support that. Well, we'll have to see about that. Um, You talked about the history and the bipartisan support, and you wrote the book, We the Women, The Unstoppable Mothers of the Equal Rights Amendment. So I've I've talked a little bit about what I'm learning. What would be some of the key lessons that you learned in researching and writing that book? In this country, as compared to many other countries in the world, progress has been very slow in getting women into Congress. Even today, we're at an all-time high. That all-time high is about 25% of Congress. If you think about that, you need two-thirds of both houses of Congress to make a constitutional amendment. We don't even have one-third women. We don't have enough women to block an amendment if men wanted to make one without ever talking to any of their female colleagues. That's a very interesting situation. Uh, Most other parliaments uh, in the world, we rank very low compared to our peer democracies. Uh, And... And so I think that is part of the explanation for why it has taken so long uh, to get something which most people in the world think of as a pretty uncontroversial uh, and an essential element of constitutional democracy, the guarantee of equal rights between women and men. It's been interesting in looking at the history. I've learned more and more about all the women of color uh, who were involved in that fight from Ida B. Wells and Sojourner Truth that uh, traditionally folks did not, even at the time, they had to fight for that right. Uh, was that something interesting, too, that, that you uh, studied? Absolutely. So I think, and especially if you watch a show like Mrs. America, which was about the opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment and Phyllis Schlafly's leadership, and I think even on the pro-ERA side, there's a lot of emphasis on some of the activists like Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem. But we often forget that the, the way that the Constitution says you make an amendment is you start in Congress. And there were women of color, the first women of color who were elected to Congress, who gave amazing speeches on the floor about why the Equal Rights Amendment uh, was needed. So Patsy Takamoto Mink, 
who was the first Asian American woman uh, elected in 1964, uh, Shirley Chisholm, the first African American woman elected in 1968. And they did so many amazing things uh, in addition to advocate for the ERA. Patsy Mink is known as the mother of Title IX because that was legislation she really cared about. Around the same time that the ERA was making its way through Congress, both Shirley Chisholm and Patsy Mink were very active in trying to get federal childcare policy. And they got tremendous bipartisan support for that in Congress, but Nixon vetoed it. Uh, so it didn't come to pass in the United States. Uh, and the two of them, what was really distinctive about their contributions in shaping the meaning of the ERA in the early 1970s is that they really centered the experience of working women and especially working mothers. And I think their experiences as non-white women really drew attention to the dilemmas and the special problems that women have faced historically because they work and not always because they want to work, uh, but often because they have to work uh, to feed their families. Uh, and uh, Shirley Chisholm had experience before she became a legislator as a director of a childcare center in New York. So she understood uh, the dynamics uh, that working mothers faced uh, as they relied on childcare so that they could put food on the table. And Patsy Mink also, uh, as uh, one of the few women who graduated from law school uh, in the middle of the century, in the uh, 1950s, she really understood uh, discrimination against women uh, looking for work as a lawyer and, um, and what it meant to be a working mother uh, in that profession. So I think they really centered those experiences as they understood, as they put forth the case for why the Equal Rights Amendment was needed. I'm so glad, Julie, that you've lifted their voices up because we don't often enough hear hear about that. Of course, I'm a big fan of un, un, what is it, unbought and unbossed Shirley Chisholm and running for president. I do always ask my guests uh, a question. I say, "What question have I not asked that I should have?" Because it's something that you care deeply about. Uh, and you want folks to know the answer. Well, I think you did ask it and <laughs> get to it because I was stuck in an earlier historical period. But I want to emphasize that the three late ratifications of the ERA, that is the ratifications that took place in Nevada and Illinois and Virginia from 2017 until 2020, these were also efforts that were led by women of color in the state legislatures, African-American women. So Pat Spearman, a Nevada state senator, uh, was one of the most important proponents of the Equal Rights Amendment uh, in the Nevada legislature. And of course, Nevada really um, set things going uh, by proving that you can do this uh, and bring, raising the question, uh, what does it mean now, now that we have 36 states, uh, not 35 states? And then Illinois followed the following year. And there uh, you had a lot of women of color, including Juliana Stratton, who's now the lieutenant governor of Illinois, uh, who really talked on the floor about how the Equal Rights Amendment would help African-American women in particular. And then in Virginia, you had African-American women of three generations, uh, Mamie Locke, uh, baby boomer, Jennifer McClellan, generation X and Jennifer Carol Foy, a millennial, uh, who all sponsored the resolutions in the two chambers of the Virginia legislature. So I think it's fair to say that the revival of the Equal Rights Amendment in the 21st century 
really would not have happened uh, without the leadership of African-American women in those three state legislatures. And that is also a fact that needs to be taken into account as Congress and we the people uh, evaluate uh, the legitimacy of the ERA today, the legitimacy of the revival movement. Personally, I have just found it just such a pleasure to to talk with you and and really the way you put these concepts in in ways that everyone understands uh, their importance and the work that has been done in the past that still needs to be done. I think the listeners of Equal Time will really you know benefit a lot from your knowledge. So thank you so much, Julie, for being a guest on Equal Time. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. So what's been keeping me up at night? One year in, I miss the communal experiences that seem a distant memory. Hope is in sight as more Americans are getting vaccinated, though many are understandably impatient and are eager for everything to go back to normal. Maybe that's premature, experts say. This particular disagreement resulted in a testy exchange between Senator Rand Paul and Dr. Anthony Fauci at a recent Senate hearing. When Paul called mask wearing theater, in fact, when Senator Ted Cruz called the concerns of his opponents on the issue of gun control ridiculous theater, well, as a proud theater nerd who has been missing my fix this past year, I had thoughts. I write about it in my roll call column this week. Check it out. Listeners have shared what's keeping them up. One is struggling with the definition of the word reality and wonders why Americans can't agree on what's true and what's not. A friend who was the only Asian American girl in her class in a Southern city and was teased, thought things had gotten better since her childhood. Now she's worried. And another equal time listener says what's keeping her up is that her son-in-law needs a job. The political and the practical. Let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. And thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast.